Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Whatever happened to poetry? Once a cornerstone of almost every culture, the presence of poetry seems to have been reduced to the recitation of lines in classrooms, except for the few that uphold this ancient shape-shifting art form. Professor David Mason is one of those people, arguing for the resurgence of poetry as something that is universally good. When expression of a thought or feeling is too difficult to articulate in other ways, poetry might just be the answer. David is a writer and poet who recently gave a lecture at the University of Melbourne titled Turning to Voice, Poetry and the Public. Andy Horvath sat down to chat with him about the importance of poetry in our everyday lives. My name is David Mason. I grew up in the far Pacific Northwest of the United States, but I belong in Tasmania and I belong with Chrissy on the five acres of land we are working and living on right now. Now, you're going to read us a poem by Chrissy. Yeah. Okay, go okay, for this it. Is, this is a poem she wrote in Oregon. We used to own a house on the Oregon coast, which is a lot like Tasmania. Uh, it's about a blue moon, uh, which is when you have two full moons in the course of one month. And this is called August Moon. And one reason I love this poem is that it says something I don't believe has ever been said before by any poet in any language. August Moon. Gray-faced as worlds flow fast away, for worlds are done with every day for minds hot-wired to the sun. Her news is blue. Her borrowed light softens the truth. The truth is night. Now, to me, that's a perfect example of one of the things poetry does best, which is to shock us into a kind of renewed stance toward the world and toward life. People will have to think quite a bit about what it means when you say the truth is night. Um, They might mean uh, that you're saying the the truth is something dark or depressive, uh, but it might mean quite the opposite. Uh, And that ambiguity, that lack of fundamentalist stance in poetry is one of the reasons this art form is important to the human species. David, that was beautiful. And you're right, poetry is open to interpretation, just like artworks, as different people get different things out of it. Except this one is kind of like, um, I've got a definition of poetry for you, let's see if the poet likes it. From emotion to billboards in liquid language. In liquid language. Yeah. Very interesting. I love liquidity. Um, uh, I love water. And water is one of the, the fundamental elements that's important in everything I write and everything my wife writes as well. Liquid language, something that seems fluid, flowing, but also is the stuff of life. There's no life without water. The great poet W.H. Auden says, thousands have lived without love, not one without water. And water is life. There's no life on earth without water. Water is of the utmost importance. The species will die off without it. All species will die off without it. So in that sense, poetry is associated with life. By the way, the the great mythological figure for poetry, Pegasus, the winged horse, uh, 
has in its etymological root the word pigi, which is the Greek word for a spring. So the very thing, the tap or the spring that you get your water from, is what this horse is named for. In in myth, the horse was pawing the earth. Uh, and where the horse was pawing the earth, in, depending on which version of the myth you've, you've read, different mountains in Greece, a spring came up and a source of water. And that may or may not be the spring around which the muses gathered, the muses being the daughters of memory. So memory, water, the flight of poetry, all of those things are mythologically associated and um, and I think your definition's pretty good. Oh, thank of, you. It's it's also vague enough to be useful. You know? <laughs> I did add on to the end of that, and it's meant to be shared. Yeah, yeah, poetry, absolutely. It needs to be shared. It needs to be public. Yeah. Now, David, tell us your various definitions of poetry, or ones that you've liked. Well, there've been there've been many. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned Auden earlier. Uh, Auden said that poetry was a game of knowledge. He also said it was a reverent frivolity. Uh, it is uh, uh, an awareness of being alive in the world uh, through the medium of language. And uh, I think that's the, the fundamental importance of it. it. It creates moments of honoring our being alive now. And it connects us to uh, other people's voices in past times. For example, if I quote a great anonymous poem that goes, Western wind, when will thou blow? The small rain down can rain. Christ, if my love were in my arms, and I in my bed again. That's a song. There's a lovely melody for that song. You can find it on YouTube. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Um, we don't know who wrote it. So it's by that great poet, Anonymous. It's roughly 500 years old. And there it is, a human voice talking about the most elemental, the most important human experiences there are, being far from home, wanting to get back home. There it is. There's the basis of the Odyssey of Homer. There's the basis of a great deal of literature in the world. Um, Christ, if my love were in my arms and I in my bed again, uh, wanting that intimacy, wanting that human connection, it, it doesn't get more profound than that. Uh, so the fact that we don't know who wrote that poem is irrelevant. What we have is a human voice crossing time and speaking to us about experience that we all share. And in that respect, uh, I think a definition of poetry would be it's a voice. Auden says, all I have is a voice to undo the, the folded lie. Um, he says that in September 1st, 1939. Uh, and uh, I think that's an important aspect to the art. Poetry seems to have disappeared from our lives. I don't remember really doing poetry only at school. I don't hear it mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. What's happened to poetry? Well, in fact, poetry hasn't disappeared. I'll address that in just a moment. Poetry is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, and I can give you several demonstrations of that. Uh, but one thing that does happen is that that formal art that we associate with poetry comes to seem distasteful to a lot of people, partly because education makes it distasteful. Education tends to turn it into something 
uh, that's a bit like eating overcooked Brussels sprouts. It's supposed to be good for you, but it just it doesn't feel good. It doesn't taste good. So a lot of young people turn away from it or lose interest in it. Or, or a lot of older people will remember that they were meant to get poems by heart, uh, not necessarily poems that they liked or that they enjoyed. So it was fed to them like like the vegetable course they didn't really want to have. Um, and that's just a social problem. What those people come to understand, if they're given an opportunity, is that uh, it's really not poetry they object to. Um, it's something about their education they're objecting to. Poetry is everywhere. It's in pop music. It's in rap and hip-hop. It's in folk song. Uh, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and I think that's a relatively um, uh, you know, coherent decision on the part of the Swedish Academy. Um, and uh, poetry is in movies, television shows. It's, it's, it's really ubiquitous. Uh, there's, in fact, a website, the Academy of American Poets, where you can go and find a list of movies and TV shows in which poems are used. Um, I'm remembering a case in Woody Allen's movie, Hannah and Her Sisters, in which Michael Caine is falling in love with his wife's sister, played by Barbara Hershey, and their courtship uh, is exemplified by a poem by E.E. E. Cummings that he asks her to read. And you hear this poem on voiceover in the movie. And if you're sitting in a crowded theater watching that film, you'll notice that the, the audience will just become quiet as that poem is being spoken because it's an unaccountably beautiful poem. It's a poem I can't really paraphrase. It's a poem of absolutely gorgeous language, somewhere I have never traveled gladly beyond any experience. Your eyes have their silence, it goes. And, and at some point, in the, po the poet says, I do not know what it is about you that opens and closes. Beautiful, beautiful language. That audience in a movie theater may or may not be aware that they're listening to a poem from a book. It doesn't matter. What matters is that there's a quality of language that's happening in the room that creates attention. It slows things down and makes people listen, especially when it's well-performed. And uh, that's poetry. So it is everywhere around yeah. us. Yeah, it is. And, and a great deal of the language you speak every day is, in fact, Shakespeare. Uh, there's a very high percentage of common phrases used on the street in Melbourne every day. Um, that are Shakespeare, straight out of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. Will you share a poem with us? Okay. Um, here's an example of a poem. Uh, I'll see if I can remember it. My father descended into Alzheimer's, and it was a terrible thing to see, and I was also taking care of another Alzheimer's patient at that time in my life. So it was a troubling number of years. And uh, after he died... I remember sitting in my office, a kind of sterile room in Colorado, uh, just a, an avalanche of books piled up around me, and thinking to myself two things. Thinking, I hadn't written free verse in a while, and I should try something in free verse. And also thinking that there were aspects of my father's decline that I'd always been afraid to write about. And I said, you better write about this, this thing that scares you. I don't know why it scared me to write about it, but it did. I ended up writing this poem relatively quickly, and it ended up being published in, in The New Yorker and getting around the world quite a bit. So it was a good lesson for me, learning that sometimes you have to write what you're afraid to write. 
It's called Fathers and Sons. Some things they say one should not write about. I tried to help my father comprehend the toilet, how one needs to undo one's belt, to slide one's trousers down and sit. But he stubbornly stood and would not bend his knees. I tried again to bend him toward the seat, and then I laughed at the absurdity. Fathers and sons, how he had wiped my bottom half a century ago, and how I would repay the favor if he would only sit. Don't you? He gripped me, trembling, searching for my eyes. Don't you? But the word was lost to him. Somewhere a man of dignity would not be laughed at. He could not see... It was only the crazy dance that made me laugh, trying to make him sit when he wanted to stand. I'm not sure why I was so afraid to publish that poem, um, but uh, it was necessary for me to try to write about the thing that I thought other people would find distasteful. Uh, and that's a, a big lesson. You have to disarm the ego and be willing to risk saying what you're afraid to say. There's something of relief for me in hearing that poem because I've been experiencing something very similar. Yeah. In fact, identical. Yeah. And I just, I appreciate the relief yeah. that someone else has that experience as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we, we live in a time right now where we're very skeptical about notions of human universality. We're, we're so involved in our separateness, our identities, all that sort of thing. And that's all important. There's no denying it. Uh, but in truth, um, the arts do speak to forms of universality, uh, which is why they travel the world. It's why they're ubiquitous, why they get around, you know, why Yeats is read in Japan and India and... Uh, you know, why Shakespeare is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, Chrissy just dipped into the studio and reminded me of this lovely moment just about the time Macduff discovers that his wife and children have been killed by Macbeth's henchmen when Malcolm says to him, Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the all-fraught heart and bids it break. Um, and Chrissy and I have talked about those words quite a bit um, as a, an essential aspect of poetry. Poetry is not just about griefs, of course. Um, you know, it's also about joys. It's, uh, it's about goofiness. It's about play. It's about uh, the anarchic spirit within all of us. Um, but it does seem to give a kind of measured dignity to our griefs. And that's an important thing. The comedy, the tragedy, the humanity. Yeah. Let's make poetry more ubiquitous, even yeah. more ubiquitous. Yeah. Let's breathe into the business world. Let's open conferences with yeah. it. Let's yeah. have one at the door of the library. Yeah. Um, now, you're on that exact mission. Yeah. Well, it, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a lecture tonight that's based on uh, my years of experience as the Poet Laureate of Colorado. But I've always been interested in this interface. Why is it 
that sometimes isolated and very private uh, lives of poets uh, can some to be come to be important in in public moments. It's a strange phenomenon. That is to say, one of the worries about about having a poet laureate or being a poet laureate is that one might uh, trivialize the art. Uh, turn it into a sort of advertising or, you know, like advertising for a monarchy, for example, or advertising for the empire. Uh, Sometimes Tennyson and Kipling are accused of excusing the the dark side of the British empire as poets. Uh, But that's not all Tennyson and Kipling were about. Uh, There's a lot more to them than than that. Um, So it it strikes me that at its best – Poetry is about being alive to the world and alert to the world in ways that we too often forget. I think one line I would chisel on every building in in America is, uh, if you can bring nothing to this place but your carcass, keep out. Now, that's the end of a William Carlos Williams poem, uh, which is called Dedication for a Plot of Ground. Uh, but I, I I quote that poem to my students, and it sort of shocks them into awareness, right? If you can bring nothing to this place but your carcass, keep out, you know? What the hell are you doing here, you know? So what it does is it throws the onus back on the audience, back on the listener, the auditor of the poem, and says, who are you? What are you going to do? How are you going to change your stance toward life? Uh, how are you going to look at things again, look at things anew? The other aspect of it is that I'm not sure you can force poetry into the public. I'm not sure you can just decide as a matter of public policy that it's going to be everywhere, you know. I mean, I'm not king of the world, so it's, you know, my my druthers are not going to be public policy. Um, And it creeps into the world in these strange ways. It comes out of small presses. It comes out of small voices. It comes from lives that are sometimes entirely entirely neglected. You know, uh, John Donne was a public man, but he only published a couple of poems in his life. And there's hardly a more important lyric poet in the language. Emily Dickinson, one of the very greatest poets ever to write in English, published, I think, fewer than seven poems in her lifetime. And um, and the poems can be incredibly difficult and arcane. They can really make you wonder what the heck she means. Um, and that's an important aspect of the art, that sometimes it doesn't come in, in a simple, surfacial way. It asks you to think uh, multiply, to identify meanings that you might have not been able to come up with by other means. So... You know, uh, yeah, make poetry public. I, I, I like the idea of the laureate as somebody who's simply going around spreading the word. You know, there's something of a, um, you know, uh, spreading the gospel, as it were. Uh, but you have to do it with a sense of humor and with a sense of balance and a sense of proportion, understanding that you, you can't make other people love anything. Uh, and this is something that I learned as a teacher. In fact, I started something in America that's kind of wonderful in that uh, a friend of mine named Dana Joya, who ran the National Endowment for the Arts, picked up this idea and ran with it and started a program which is practiced in many high schools all over America now where kids memorize and perform poems. It's called Poetry Out Loud. Uh, It's a great program that Dana devised, but it was an idea that he and I had been talking about for years. I was teaching poetry 
in an institution where a great many of my students would tell me they just hated it. Uh, they'd always hated it. Uh, they'd sit there with their sullen looks and crossed arms saying, there's no way in hell you're going to make me like this stuff. And so I finally learned that I, I, they're right. I can't make them like this stuff. What I can do is tell them that they will flunk if they don't memorize and recite 100 lines of it. Um, okay. And so I can say you can recite a dirty limerick. You can recite Mother Goose. You can recite whatever, but you've got to recite 100 lines of verse or you will get an F in this class. You will flunk this class. That has been the fundamental element in all my teaching for 30 years now. And it's the best thing I've ever done as a teacher because what it, it says is you don't have to love anything, but you have to know what it is. You have to experience it. Um, and many of those students who would tell me they hated poetry would come to me afterwards and say, grudgingly, eh, well, that wasn't so bad, you know? Um, that was a good thing you made me do. And I tell them they can get free beer in Ireland if they can recite a lot of poetry, <laughs> right? You know? uh, so it's a useful thing. Um, in Ireland. Yeah, yeah in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> Got to love that. More, more pubs should do that, I think. Yeah. 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 More Irish pubs out there. Come yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beer for poetry. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Now, David, tell me about your inspirations. This is I know this is probably a question you get a lot, but tell me about the process of inspiration. And also, I've noticed an obsession in your poetry because I've had a scan of them and I keep seeing reoccurring motifs of the water, the shore, the yeah. sea, yeah. salt, that yeah. sort of thing. Am I on to you? You aren't. You're on to me. Yeah. Though my father grew up far inland in Trinidad, Colorado, on the New Mexican border. And my mother grew up in Colorado as well. They met on the Pacific in World War II. And I grew up on the Pacific, specifically a, a, an arm of the Pacific Ocean in the far northwest, very close to Vancouver, B.C., a place called the Puget Sound, which happens to be at a latitude north, very close to the latitude south of Tasmania. Uh, and it happens to resemble Tasmania quite a bit. So I'm, I'm quite at home in Tasmania, just as I was ho at home growing up in the Northwest. I respond to landscape and weather kind of the way werewolves respond to the moon. You know, there's some kind of absolute blood deep response to what's around me. And uh, that's been the case all my life. So that is the source of my inspiration place atmosphere, weather, where I am, uh, and also human voices. I remember my parents reading aloud to me, and I remember taking language in as a voice, as a series of voices, and always responding as a voice. Um, and I've also been thinking a lot lately that uh, my name, Mason, uh, is in some sense respond, uh, resp a response or indicative of, a metaphor for, uh, the way I uh, write poems. That is to say, a mason is not just someone who puts one brick on top of another or one stone on top of another. A mason is actually paying a great deal of attention to the material itself, particularly if you work with stone. You are, you are really looking at the shapes of stones around you all the time and picking them up, weighing them, studying them, thinking about whether they'll fit with another stone or not. And to me, working with words is a lot like that. 
not as a as a mechanical process, but as a process of observation and a kind of physical association, rubbing one thing up against another and seeing what happens. Uh, and I would say that when you're working, when you're in the midst of writing something, very, very often you're not conscious so much of a purpose or a, a destination in what you're doing. You're just aware of what happens when one word touches another word and where it might lead. Very often it, it might be a rhyme or a sound that's leading the hand as much as anything else. My elderly parents went into aged care recently and the one book my mother took on the first day in was a poetry book. Yeah. And I do remember this poetry book because she used to read poetry out loud yeah. before I went to school as a kid. Yeah. And there were some poems I even remember the one line to because they made me giggle or laugh. It was yeah. about a fly hitting a wall exactly. um, and that sort of thing. So should poetry be out aloud? And it, and I also think it needs to be shared. Yeah. But I'm also thinking and you've inspired me, poetry is kind of therapy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very th I think the arts are very therapeutic. Um, and uh, the process of making art is a therapeutic process. There's something about the way it unites uh, the hemispheres of the brain. There's something about the way it uh, creates a form of attention, close attention to the world and attention to the medium you're working in. Shakespeare says, my nature is subdued to what it works in like the dyer's hand. Well, if your nature is subdued to the medium it's working in, then you are deeply involved. You're deeply attentive. Uh, and what can happen, this is something the poet Robert Graves noticed. He was very big on the idea of the trance state. What can happen is what's called a hypnagogic trance, where you're so attentive uh, to things that you forget time passing. What's happening there is that you are experiencing a unity of being, a unity of, of self, um, which is not self-conscious. It's not ego-conscious. Uh, and there's something uh, like a salve, like a bomb, uh, uh, that comes onto one's spirit when one experiences that. It's partly why the creative experience is addictive, I think. We need it. We want it. We desire it. We want to get back to that place where we were self-forgetful, like being in the midst of a dance. You know, if you're thinking about yourself when you're dancing, you're not going to dance very well. Uh, if you lose self-consciousness, you're going to be involved in the dance, and that's important. What's your take-home message or what would you like us to think about next time we stumble across a poem or we're aware that what we've heard was poetic? Mm -hmm. Well, if you stumble across something and you think it's interesting, then um, I would say, what is it that made you interested in that moment? The same thing that would happen if you see anything out in the world and you suddenly think that's interesting. Uh, it might be that it's a line that feels memorable. Um, I'm suddenly thinking of two lines by William Butler Yeats. Many times man lives and dies between his two eternities, that of race and that of, I think, soul, something like that. Uh, he's talking about birth and death, right? So between the two eternities, there are many times you live and die. Now, that is important to me. Because it's important to know when I feel like I'm dying, when I feel like I can't live through this, uh, 
I can't survive this, um, that I will be born again, I will live again, um, uh, that, that one goes through these things in life all the time, um, uh, especially if one is reasonably alive and aware and, and willing to grow, willing to die and like sloughing off one skin and, and finding another. Renewal. Renewal, yeah. Um, now, what I've done there is I've just given an example of some lines that floated into my head that grabbed my attention. Um, lines can come from any place, and they may be from a poem. They may be particularly poetic lines that are not necessarily from a poem. They might be something you, you read on the street um, or um, uh, something you uh, heard on, on, on a television program or in a pop song or, or, or something else. Um, and you suddenly fixate on that line, that turn of phrase. That experience is an experience you want to hang on to in life. That's one of the moments when language is helping you. Um, and one thing, one aspect of poetry is that it is really language for living. It really is. Um, there's a way in which my profession, the academic teaching profession, has done a little bit of damage to the art by suggesting that somehow or another we need to think of it entirely as an intellectual process. Sometimes the words are just beautiful words, and you really want to just carry them around and sing them even. I used to work in, in unloading ships in Alaska when I was young, or I worked as a gardener in upstate New York for a while, and working alone in strange places, very, very often lines from poems would just float into my head, and I would, I would make up tunes for them. I would make songs for them, and I would sing them out loud to my own little tunes. Well, that's a way of carrying the art um, and making it your own. I've known a, a Scottish immigrant uh, with the equivalent of a grade eight education, who had hundreds of Scottish poems by heart, a man who moved to America at the age of 42 and died at the age of 84 in Cleveland, Ohio. And whenever in his 80s, when he used the word home, he meant Scotland. He didn't mean Cleveland. Well, poetry was his country, his home that he carried with him. Uh, and they weren't always great poems. Sometimes they were poems from tea towels in his mother's house or silly little ditties or children's poems. Uh, sometimes they were Bobby Burns poems. Um, but this was a way of carrying his culture, carrying his language. It's utterly portable, and that's an important aspect of the art. Uh, uh, it's something you can carry in your head and carry in your heart, and it comes in handy. It's not just that a poem might speak to a specific occasion, but it's also that sometimes just being able to say beautiful words, to put beautiful words together, uh, is a way of uh, moving through time and living your life and holding on to your life more valuably. Professor David Mason, thank you for your beautiful words. Thank you. But before I let you go out of the studio, sitting here on our desk here is a book by yourself, David Mason, The Sound. Yeah. Well, this is a new and selected poems. This represents, uh, from my point of view, perhaps the best work uh, I've done in shorter forms over the last 40 years. I, the book of mine that's best known in America is actually a novel in verse called Ludlow, uh, a historical novel. 
But these are generally shorter poems. There's one long narrative poem in the book and a few shorter narrative poems. But on the whole, these are lyric poems. Uh, the Sound is the title of one of the poems. It refers, of course, to the Puget Sound, where I grew up. But the sound is also what Robert Frost called the gold in the ore. The sound is is this kind of feeling one has when one uh, works in the medium of words that one is pursuing a sound. One is uh, hoping to make a sound that matches the sound you've always loved all your life. Uh, it's a way of coming to the art through music, uh, through the auditory imagination. Will you leave us with a poem from sure. the sound? Sure. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a little love poem for my wife. This is a poem called The Soul Fox. Uh, I wrote this poem in Colorado. Uh, she had just seen a fox out the back window of our cabin one October evening with snow on the ground. Uh, and she was grieving, missing Australia, and um, grieving other things about being in America. And uh, so I wrote her this poem. My love... The fox is in the yard. The snow will bear its print a while, then melt and go. But we who saw his way of finding out, his night of seeking, know what we have seen and are the better for it. Write. Let the white page bear the mark, then melt with joy upon the dark. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Professor David Mason. Thank you, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Professor David Mason and his wife, Chrissy. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 17, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.